0: Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Wassallah, Wassalam, Mubarak, Allah, Sayyidina, Wa Molana, Mohammedin, Wa Allah, Alihi, Wassahbihi, Wassalam, Allah, who are Alimna, Mayan Faruna, Wan Farna, Bima Alam Tana, Wazidna, Bin Fodrica, Ilman, Wata Alima, In Naka Allah, Kulishay, and Kodir, Wabad, Assalamu Alaikum, Wahmatullah, He Ta'ala, Wabarakatu. Alhamdulillah, this is uh, lesson 102 in our study of the seerah of the Holy Prophet. And we are now in the seventh year after the Hijrah to Medina. And at this point, in the seventh year after the Hijrah, after the Treaty of Al Hudaybiyah, we are either to discuss the battle of Khaybar, or we are to discuss the various letters that the prophet had sent to the various leaders outside of Arabia. Why do I present it as an either-or? Either we talk about Khaybar first, or we talk about the letters. Why do I present this as an option? It's because of the discrepancies that exist in the books of seerah. As we've said on a number of occasions, when you go through the seerah literature, you sometimes come across discrepancies in the historical timeline and the exact dates of various events. And this is one of them. Ibn Ishaq, for instance, in his seerah, he states, that the Prophet sallallahu remained in Medina after his return from Al-Hudaybiyah for Dhul-Hijjah and a part of Muharram and then went to Khaybar for the Ghazwa. This is mentioned in the seerah of Ibn Ishaq that he went for the Ghazwa of Khaybar in what remained of the month of Muharram. However, in the tabaqat of Ibn Sa'ad as well as Al-Waqidi's Maghazi, we find that Khaybar is recorded as occurring either in the month of al-Rabi' al-Awwal or Safar, and some narrations even say Jum'ad al-Ula. So there are some discrepancies about the exact dates. So we're going to take this latter view, the view of Ibn Sa'ad and Al-Waqidi, and that means we'll talk about the letters first, before we talk about the Battle of Khaibar, inshaAllah ta'ala. So this lesson and next week's lesson is just going to look at the letters. And the letters, it's a big topic because we have letters that were sent to leaders outside of Arabia, and we have letters that were sent to various leaders inside of Arabia. And today, inshaAllah, we'll look at those letters sent to the leaders outside of Arabia. So after... The Prophet ﷺ had secured this treaty of Al hudaybiyah he was no longer on a defensive or offensive war posture. It was a time of peace. So, in this time of peace, the Prophet ﷺ applied his energies in that moment to da'wah to inviting others to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now we've said, we've said before on a number of occasions that when you look at the seerah, when you look at his life, you realize everything is about da'wah. It's not that here is a phase of da'wah in a phase where there's no da'wah. There's always da'wah going on because for the messenger of Allah, Sayyiduna Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, his every Movement and stillness, every walking moment, every aspect about him, every item belonging, everything about him, everything connected to him is a testament to Taw'eed and in its own way is a kind of da'wah calling people to Allah Ta'ala. But we're talking about a particular type of da'wah which is outreach, sending letters conveying the message of Islam and calling people, inviting them, summoning them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now that he is freed from the burdens of defense or offense, he can now put all of his energy and focus on inviting people to Islam. How does he do this? He does it by calling the Arab leaders in various tribes and the foreign rulers, to Islam by sending them letters. Now, you, we always talk about this, how it's important to contextualize the seerah, understand the nature of life in ancient Arabia and how different it was from our life here. His sending letters to these rulers is not like you or me sending letters to the White House or calling our congressmen. It's not the same thing at all. Because you have to appreciate that in that time there were certain protocols that had to be followed before you can send a letter. And for them to even open the letter and have it read, there were certain protocols that had to be in place. So him sending letters to these various rulers outside of Arabia, proclaiming himself as the messenger of Allah and the ruler of Medina, Is da'wah as well as a statement about his political authority If you send a letter to the White House The president is not going to read it It's very unlikely it's going to get to him If you send a letter to your congressman It's very unlikely they're going to read it It's going to go to one of their staff And there's no protocol except clicking send Or putting it in the post office, in the post box So for him sending these letters, he's also announcing his own political authority. And most of these rulers, you see that they're living on the outskirts of Arabia in the surrounding regions. This is important to understand because lesser men would have been afraid to send such letters. Why? Because in sending such letters, it's also announcing your political authority, which could be challenged. It could be challenged by those rulers. You could get a negative response. Who are you to send me a letter as if you were a ruler? Let's test that. Let's test that. And we see some traces of that in some of the responses to these letters. But Rasulullah is assured of victory. So he sends these letters out, calling people to Islam. And also in that (coughs) subtext, he's announcing his political and religious authority before the conquest of Mecca. So some of the ulama have noted that the letters that the Prophet ﷺ sent to these rulers occurred right after Hudaybiyah and not before Hudaybiyah, which begs the question, why didn't he send letters to the rulers before Hudaybiyah? What was so significant about Hudaybiyah that now he's sending letters to these various rulers and it seems that the clearest answer to that question is that now after the treaty of Hudaybiyah, with a peace treaty it means that the Rusul the emissaries the ambassadors those who are traveling on his behalf to deliver the letters are now able to travel with aman with safety before the treaty of Al Hudaybiyah, that was not the case there was no guarantee that they could travel freely and safely before they secured this treaty. Now that the treaty is in place, there's a safe route to go anywhere. So now these messengers are being sent out to deliver these letters. We have a hadith in the Shamail of Imam Tirmidi tirmidhi from Anas ibn Umarik. Sayyidina Anas radiyallahu anhu, he reported in this hadith recorded by Imam Tirmidi. tirmidhi when the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wanted to write to the non-Arabs, meaning the rulers of the non-Arabs, he was informed that they would only accept letters that were marked with seals. And for this reason, he had a ring made. And Sayyidina Anna says, it's as if I'm looking at its whiteness in his palm right now. What, what does he mean by that? Because it's pure silver. It's a pure silver ring. It's a signet ring. It has an inscription on it. And we covered this in the chapter on the Khatam in the Shema'il of Imam, Imam tirmidhi that it had an inscription where one line says, Muhammad, the next line says, Rasul, and the next line says, Allah, Lafdu Jalala, Muhammadun Rasulullah. And that was inscribed into the ring. And... Notice that Anna says that it's as if I'm seeing the white its whiteness in his palm. Why does he say palm? Because the signet ring that was used to stamp the letters, to stamp, stamp the wax, the inscription part would be turned inward. So he would have the ring with the, the seal part turned inward and he would use that to stamp it with his blessed hand, صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وسلم. We have another narration from Imam Daraqutni. He relates in his sunan from Yahya bin Umayya who said, I made the ring of the Prophet wasallam, and no one else shared that honor with me. Engraved on it was Muhammadun Rasulullah. So he had this ring made for the purpose of sending these letters and following the protocol that already existed among rulers, in terms of what they would accept or not accept of official correspondence. So, the ulama mentioned that this hadith indicates that the Prophet ﷺ would adopt the practices of other cultures in order to make the message more appealing. That was the protocol. That was the protocol. And this protocol was in effect among whom? among non-Muslims, among people of different nations, of different religions. But it was a common practice. It was the protocol. So he would adopt these aspects of other cultures to make the message of Islam more appealing as long as those practices were not unlawful in Islam. The lesson here for us is that we should not really place any premium on going against the dominant culture just for the sake of going against the dominant culture. We adopt the things that are praiseworthy or that are mubah, that are permissible, because the Prophet would seek to minimize the non essential differences between him and others. This is such an important point. He would purposely minimize the non-essential differences between him and other people. He did not insist on doing it some other way just because that was the protocol of non-Muslims, of disbelievers. He adopted it because it was permissible and it facilitated conveying the message of Islam. So this reconciliation that we do has to, of course, be done with integrity and so that it holds to the concrete values of Islam. But we see this in the seerah. So he had the ring made. And he had the letters written up. Now came the time to pick who is going to be the ambassador, the Rasul, the messenger, the emissary, to take the letter, travel with it, and deliver it to that ruler on behalf of the Prophet Wasallam. Now for him selecting these people he selected those who had previously traveled to those regions beforehand. Who had a prior relationship with those rulers and those kings. Who knew their customs and their ways. And in many cases knew their languages. And their ulama mentioned from this the importance of knowing how to pick the right people for outreach. Some and this is my own, my own take from this, and I don't want it to come across in any way as uh, xenophobic, but we see from this lesson here that most outreach should be in, I believe this to be the case, that most outreach in North America or most outreach or da'wah or representation in the public sphere in say place, countries in Europe should ideally be done by people who are converts to Islam, or who are second generation, third generation children of immigrants who grew up in that environment, who know not just the language, but they know the cultural nuances from having been born there and raised there, and they know the people they're speaking to. They are they tend to do a better job at that outreach because they know the people. Uh, I remember there was an incident. Uh, this was going back over a decade, over a decade. There was a, a state in the U.S., uh, in one small town, they were building a masjid. And this was during the heyday of the Iraq War. You know the environment, how it was back then. There was a lot of suspicion cast on Muslims. And the people in that small town were really upset at the idea of a masjid being built. And they began to protest the building of the masjid, trying to block its construction, and it became a big thing in the media. And CNN made a documentary about this. And I remember many years ago watching this documentary, and I was a bit disappointed because the the masjid, they had appointed as their spokesperson a person who did not know the culture of the people they were living around, southern U.S. culture. You know, I grew up in that region. Those are, those are my people. I know, I know how they think. I know what makes them tick. And it was very alienating to the people the way that person dealt with them because it was very adversarial. It, it wasn't a person who knew the culture that well. And I, I remember thinking to myself, subhanAllah, if only they hired as their spokesperson or outreach guy somebody who's born and raised in that region ideally a convert that you know, those people can relate to, who could go visit them, I don't know, they can bake apple pies or something and you know, bring them to the house and just have conversations, just get to know them, and then present the message of Islam and what they're about. That would break down the barriers, but instead they appointed someone who actually made it worse because he was very alienating in his language, and also he didn't really understand the nuances of Southern US culture and the customs and the ways of communicating and dealing with things. That's just one example, but you see here the wisdom of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He didn't just pick anyone to go as an ambassador. They have experience there. They know the language. They know the culture. They know the nuances. So they are the best suited for going and delivering his message Now in the seerah of Ibn Hisham, we find a really interesting narration. And it, it mentions in that narration that before sending them to deliver the message, he went to them and said, these are to the, the, the soon-to-be ambassadors, he said to them, Allah has sent me as a mercy and sent me to everyone, so convey on my behalf بَلِّغُ عَنِّي Convey on my behalf. RahimakAllah, May Allah have mercy on you. And be sincere to your Lord with his people, meaning the others. For the one who has been put in charge of the, of the affairs of people and is not sincere to them will be deprived of Jannah. Go forth and do not dispute with me as the disciples of Jesus Christ did. Now that last phrase was unclear to them. What does that mean? Do not dispute with me as the disciples of Jesus Christ did. And so they said, Ya Rasulullah, how did they dispute? He said, He called them to what I called you to, which is what? To travel the earth and spread the message and convey on my behalf. He called them to what I called you to, so those who were sent to a nearby place were willing and resigned themselves to it. That's easy. You go to a nearby place, it's close. No, Easy. And those who were sent to a distant location were loath to go and they refused. So Jesus, alayhi salam, complained of this to his Lord and each of them awoke the next day Speaking the language of the people he was instructed to go to It was one of the miracles of Prophet Isa That when he wanted to send those disciples to the further regions They were reluctant to go because that's not an easy trip And so the next morning after making this dua They woke up speaking the language of those people Now they're fully capable So the companions who are going to be sent as messengers, they heard this. And they said, we will deliver the message on your behalf and we will never dispute with you over anything. So command us and send us wherever you wish. And so here we go. The messages have been written. They've been sealed. Each one has received the letter and they're all being sent out. Now, we don't know whether or not they're all sent out the same day. Chances are they were not. But we do know that they're all arriving at different times because of the various distances. So usually in the seerah works, at this stage, they mention who went, to which ruler, and what were the contents of the letter, and what was the response of that ruler. So that's what we're gonna do today, inshallah. We'll just look at those letters. We'll see if we can get through all of them. It's a lot. So we may not be able to get it all done today, but Alhamdulillah, we'll do it next week. So the first letter, where do you think is is the first letter mentioned in the books of Seerah? That's number two. Habasha. Yeah. There's already a prior relationship established because we've spoken about the Najashi, the, the Negus of Abyssinia, who was the ruler. So it is said that the first letter was the letter sent to Najashi of Abyssinia. And this letter was delivered by Amr bin Umayya al-Damari. So he has history in Abyssinia. Now the seerah works reproduce the letters. And there are, if you go online, you'll find uh, what appears to be the original letters preserved in museums. It's not entirely clear if all of those are authentic or not. But when you read them, it's a very old, arabic kufic script so chance or even pre kufic it's it, it's an old letter but is it or is it not the actual letters allah knows best because these letters were important and inshallah next week we're going to analyze these letters and how each was different from the other and what lessons you can glean from the way he wrote the letters so the first letter i won't read it in arabic but it was written in arabic of course but its meaning is translated by means of an interpreter. The first letter reads, in the name of Allah, the Merciful, the Compassionate. So we have Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, min Muhammad Rasulillah ila najashi Malik al-Habasha. So from Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, to al-Najashi, the king of Abyssinia. He says, indeed I praise Allah, and there is no God except him, al malik Al-Quddus, As-Salam, Al-Mu'min, Al-Muhaymin. So he's mentioning the names that are mentioned in the order within Surah Al-Hashar, some of the divine names. He says, I testify that Jesus, son of Mary, is the spirit of Allah and his word that he cast into Maryam, the virgin, the clean, the chaste, the pure, the sanctified. She became pregnant and so Allah created Jesus from his spirit and blew it into him like he created Adam with his hands. I call you to Allah, the one who has no partner, and I call you to his obedience. If you follow me and believe in what I have brought, then I am the messenger of Allah, so I call you and your people to Allah Almighty. For indeed, I have conveyed the message and advised you. I have sent the son of my uncle Jafar and a group of Muslims. That's a very famous phrase. It's in the Quran as well. And peace on those who follow right guidance. So that's the content of the letter. So you see this letter is... Very carefully crafted to address someone who was a Christian. And when the letter was received, it's mentioned that the Najashi treated it with the utmost respect. He treated it with the utmost respect. And we see this pattern that those who treated the letters with respect, things went okay for them. Those who disrespected the letters, they soon fell. So he treated it with respect. And he replied, uh, as it mentions in the books of Sirah, "I bear witness that he is the unlettered prophet, for whom the people of the Scripture have been waiting for." So this means that he becomes a Muslim, right? So he writes a letter back, testifying to this and saying that if he was able. He would certainly have traveled to Medina to meet him personally. And it's narrated that he embraced Islam formally at the hands of Ja'far. After this, when the message gets back that he answered the call, the Prophet Sallallahu sends him a second letter. And then Najashi keeps this second letter and he keeps it in a box, nice and secure. And there's a longer history going on, we'll get, we'll, we'll get to it soon. There's some exchanges between the two of them. Now in the Shema'il, we find a narration where the Najashi had read the letter and he sent gifts back to the Prophet ﷺ. So in the Shema'il, we have a hadith from Bureyla, radiyallahu anhu, who says that Najashi gifted the Prophet a pair of black, Khufs, right? I saw someone wearing some today. So some black leather socks. That was number one. He immediately put them on, and then he performed the wudu and wiped over them. One hadith mentions he sent some other things as well. So upon receiving the, the response letter and the gifts, the Prophet wasallam said his famous words, لَن تَزَالَ الْحَبَشَ بِخَيْرٍ مَا كَانَ هَذَانَ الْكِتَابَانِ بَيْنَ أَظْهُرِنَا He says that Abyssinia will be in good hands as long as these two letters are with us. The two years after this, so we're in the seventh year, so two years later, so the ninth year of the Hijrah, as the Prophet wasallam was returning from Tabuk, the Najashi passed away. And in Sahih al Bukhari, we find a narration that the Prophet وسلم, mentioned the day that Najashi passed away. He told the companions and he said to them, He says that today a righteous man has passed away. Stand up and offer the funeral prayer on behalf of your brother. Asham which is the name of Najashi And so this is known as Salatul Ghaib Which is the janazah for someone who died somewhere far off Now of course there's differences of opinion among the Fuqaha About the nature of Salatul Ghaib and its applicability We won't go into all of the details concerning that But some of the Madhahib uh, in jurisprudence say that this is particular to Najashi Others say, no, it could be done for others, but it would be done for those who died uh, for whom no one was able to pray a janazah over them due to their location. Others say, no, even if the janazah was already prayed over them in the land they died, we can offer the Salat al-Ghaib over them as well. So you know, you have a spectrum of views within the schools of law about that. But all of the hadith we have about al-Ghaib go back to this incident of the death of Najashi. Uh, it's related also from Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu anha that after the death of Najashi, it is related that it word got back to the Muslims that after Najashi was buried, people would notice that it was very munawwar. That there was a you could see a light emitting from the grave. This would be a miracle. Uh, that points to the fact that Najashi was a very pious man, a righteous man who died as a Muslim. So the ulama of Sirah mentioned that of all of the leaders who received letters from the Prophet ﷺ, he, Najashi, was the most fortunate of them. So that's the first one. Who's the second one? The letter to Heraclius, Hirqal of Byzantium, of the Byzantine Empire So this is a very long story I have to see how much time we even have for that Because, okay, we're doing good Um, The Prophet for this trip He sent Dihya Al-Kalbi Now you've heard his name before Because when the Prophet was finished With the Battle of Khandaq he received the command from Jibreel that the angels are preparing and going straight to Banu Qurayza. As he's making his way, people are seeing Dihya Al-Kalbi on the road. But it wasn't Dihya Al-Kalbi, it was Jibreel alayhi salam taking the physical form of Dihya Al-Kalbi. And very often Jibreel alayhi salam would appear with, in the physical form of Dihya Al-Kalbi. One of the ulama of Andalus said that the reason why that was such a frequent occurrence that the Jibreel would appear in the form of Dihya Al-Kalbi is because he was known as the handsomest of the Arabs. Obviously after Rasulullah sallam but his was a jalal. But with Dihya, there was a general handsomeness with which he was recognized among the people. And so that scholar of Andalus said that the reason why Dihya, he took the form of Dihya so often is because it is a beautiful form. It's a form of familiarity and beauty on top of that. So this is the real Dihya al-Kalbi, the actual human Dihya al-Kalbi, who was sent because of his prior history traveling to that region and interacting with the people. He was sent there, and first he was told to go to a place called, uh, in Arabic is called, Uh, Busra, not to be confused with Basra. Where is Basra? That's in Iraq. Busra, when you look at the English word equivalent, it's called Bostra or B-O-S-T-R-A. It's a little different. But Busra, you remember, was a trading post or a way station or a stopping point. (laughs) A caravan, Saray, where people would stop on the way to Sham when they would trade their goods. And when the Prophet ﷺ was a young man with Abu Talib, when he traveled up to Sham, that's where they were at when they had the encounter with the monk. So, Bosra or Bosra was that location. And it had old ancient Roman roads. And those roads were still there because the Romans knew how to build roads, unlike today. They didn't have potholes and they still exist those roads although now they're you know there's no cities there there's no towns there anymore it's way off in the desert now but back then it was uh, it was a trade route so he was sent to Busra to meet someone named Harith ibn Abi Shamar who would be a guide for him taking him further into Byzantine territory. Um, now this Harith ibn Abi Shammar ended up giving him someone else who had expert knowledge of the routes and the people who was more familiar with how to get there than him. And that person's name was Adi ibn Abi Hatim. Adi ibn Abi Hatim, we will soon come to learn, converts to Islam. He was an Arab Christian at the time. But he converts to Islam. And this is the beginning of his story. So at the time, it is mentioned that Heraclius was actually in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem, and it is said that he went there because he had made another. What's another? It's a solemn vow. It is basically a promise you make, a commitment you make to Allah to fulfill something you impose on yourself, whether it whether something comes to pass or not, right? There's different ways you can do it. But he took another, a vow, to walk to Jerusalem and to pray at the area of Al-Aqsa after they had defeated the force, the Persians, right? So he was there. So as Heraclius was there in Jerusalem, he was overtaken by a lot of worries. He was quite stressed. And what he was worried about is his kingdom coming to an end. And it said that the reason why he felt that his kingdom might be coming to an end is because he was a very avid practitioner of, I guess today we would call it astrology. And we make a distinction between astrology and astronomy. Back then in the pre-modern world, the two were grouped together. Astronomy and astrology were not artificially separated. And that's a long topic, but he was a keen practitioner of this. And observing the stars, he came to believe that based on the lunar mansions and the movements of the stars and the positions, he came to believe that his kingdom would be under threat. So he was quite worried about what's going on. And he went to an elder who might interpret what he saw. And that elder interpreted what he saw by saying that his kingdom would indeed be overcome. And it would be overcome by men who practice khitan. What is khitan? Circumcision. Now in his mind, the only people who practice circumcision, are who? The Jews. So he's he's wondering about this prognostication. Does that mean that they're going to try to overrun or do something? But this is what's going on in his mind shortly before the arrival of Dihya Al-Kalbi. And it was at that moment, as he was talking about these signs and these worries, that one of his aides came into his room to tell him that a man has arrived with a letter to deliver. So he talks about this man. What is the identity of this person? What does he want? What is he about? And the aide is telling Heraclius, he's coming, he's calling to belief in God alone, worshiping God alone. And he's thinking, well, maybe this is a Jewish man. So he tells the aide to go and see, is he circumcised or not? Because if he is, then this would seem to be a confirmation of what he's worried about. So they go and they confirm that he was indeed circumcised. He's allowed in and he delivers the letter and the content of the letter reads in the following. It starts like the previous letter, bismillahir al rahim min muhammad abdullah wa so it starts with the Basmala and then says from Muhammad the servant of Allah and his messenger to Heraclius, the ruler of uh, Byzantium. Then he says, uh, and he says, A'zim al Rum, right? So he gives him an honorary title, which is a, there's a lesson in that too. He says uh, to A'zim al Rum, he says, uh, Again, he mentions that phrase, peace be on the one who follows guidance. As for what follows, I invite you to Islam. And if you become a Muslim, you will be safe. فَإِنِّي أَسْلِمْ تَسْلِمْ He says, if you embrace Islam, you will be safe. And Allah will double your reward. And if you reject this invitation of Islam, you will be committing a sin by which, uh, by misguiding your عَرِيسِيِّين. Now this is a little controversial. What does that mean? Some say it means your common folk. Some say that phrase means you'll be misleading your common folk, your, you know, the peasants and the ordinary people under his rule. Uh, others have said that actually it's more likely that it's referring to Arius, which we'll get into next week, which is a particular theological strand of Christianity who have a very particular way of believing about the nature and identity of Jesus Christ. We'll come to that next week, inshallah, as we analyze these letters. He says, And I recite to you Allah's statement. I recite to you the statement of Allah. Uh, Which is paraphrasing, O people of the scripture, come to a common word between us a common word between us and you, that we will worship none but Allah, and that we will associate nothing in worship with Him, and that none of us will take others as lords besides Allah, then if they turn away, say, bear witness that we are Muslims. There's, now Najashi is Christian, isn't he? But he became a Muslim. And Heraculous is a Christian as well. But notice the difference between the two letters the content is very different. This one seems a lot more forceful. This one addresses theological issues uh, and it's also giving him some dire warnings, much more so than what's contained in the letter to Najashi. So he tells them this and he says, if you become Muslim, you'll be safe and Allah will double your reward. Why will Allah double his reward? Does anyone know why? This is mentioned in another hadith. Because of when a kitabi becomes a Muslim, they receive a double reward. So let's, let's imagine in the religious landscape, you have kitabis, people who are Jewish or Christian, and then you have non-kitabis. So you can say Hindus or Buddhists or whatever. If the Hindu or the Buddhist or whoever becomes a Muslim, they're not getting double reward. So why is it that a Jew or a Christian is getting double reward? Why? Think about it. What's that? He in a religion. Right. So they before they become a Muslim, they still have a nisbah. They still have an affiliation of iman in the previous prophet. So for the Jew, there would be a belief in Musa alayhi salam and his way, his sharia. And for a Christian, it would be prophet Isa and his way. So that remains, it's just ha- it's, there's just theological clarity here. They, they give up the false beliefs, but They retain the iman in that prophet. So they receive double reward. And that's a long conversation. Some of the ulama call them Musawiyun or Isawiyun. Uh, those converts to Islam from Judaism or Christianity, they receive double reward because they already have a prior affiliation. It's just purified. Whereas someone who did not become Muslim from a Kitabi origin, they don't have that. So this is why he tells him, You'll double your reward. So, uh, Abu Sufyan happened to be here in this, in this time. Abu Sufyan is taking advantage of the freedom of travel afforded to him by the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So he was actually at the time, so where is, uh, is Heraclius in this moment? In Jerusalem. Abu Sufyan was in all places. Gaza, he was in Gaza because there's a history there. We know that Ghazza to Hashim is the old name for Gaza. And Hashim is buried in in Gaza. So Abu Sufyan happened to be in Gaza at the time on an expedition engaging in trade. So when this letter was delivered and read and translated, some of the aides of Heraclius, who have a relationship with Abu Sufyan as a tribal leader, they go there to Gaza and they get him and his men and they bring him to have a conversation with Heraclius. And this is where we get this very long narration of the dialogue between Abu Sufyan and Heraclius. Now, in this hadith, which is in Bukhari and other sources, uh, Abu Sufyan has this conversation. He's questioned, he's given a lot of questions by Heraclius about the identity of one named Muhammad ibn Abdullah, Rasulullah sallallahu And Abu Sufyan, subhanallah you know, We see him as this arch enemy to Islam and the Muslims And the Prophet sallallahu As he was at the time That's true But you also see this jahiliyyah the, the positive aspects of the jahili culture Which is that even if it's an enemy I can't tell a lie I can't lie How could I utter an untruth? I'll I'll say what's true. And so in that conversation, you see he doesn't tell a lie. He could have made up all sorts of things to demonize the community, to demonize the Prophet ﷺ, to paint this really ugly picture. But he couldn't do that because he had a sense of honor, izzatun nafs. They just couldn't bring themselves to tell untruths. So we have this dialogue. Perhaps we'll finish with this dialogue today because it's quite long and we'll pick up with next week talking about the Kisra, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Khosros or the Persian emperor. So Heraclius says, uh, what is the family status of this man? And Abu Sufyan says he comes from a noble family. And Heraclius says, has anyone claimed to be a prophet before him from amongst you? Abu Sufyan says no. And Heraculus then asks, was anybody from his ancestors a king? Abu Sufyan said no. Heraculus said, do the noble, the Ashraf, meaning the rich and wealthy and privileged of society, follow him? Or do the poor follow him? Abu Sufyan said it is Largely the poor. And then Heraclius says, What about the followers? Are they increasing or are they decreasing? Abu Sufyan answers honestly. He says, they're increasing. Especially now, after Hudaybiyah, they're increasing. Heraclius says, Are any of his followers embracing the faith and then leaving it later? Abu Sufyan said, no. They're very firm. Heraculus then asks, have you uh, ever accused him of being a liar? Have you ever accused him of being a liar? Meaning before before he made this announcement of being a prophet, did you ever consider him a liar amongst your people? And Abu Sufyan answers honestly. He says, no. Heraculus says, has he ever broken promises? He says, no. We have a truce with him at the moment. And I don't know what will happen in the future. Heraculous says, Have you ever been at war with him? Abu Sufyan says, Yes. And Heraculous says, Well, what's happened? What's been the result of the war? He says, Sometimes he's victorious, and sometimes we are. As Allah says in the Quran, those are the days Allah alternates between people. Victory sometimes lost at other times. So then Heraculus says, what does he order you to do? And Abu Sufyan says, he orders us to worship Allah, to pray, to speak the truth, to be chaste, to keep family ties. So this this back and forth. And after he, hearing all these answers, Heraculus basically gives his taḥlil. he gives his analysis based on his understanding of the Christian scripture and the prophecies and the qualities of the Anbiya, the prophets and messengers mentioned in those scriptures. So he analyzes this, and in his analysis, now the, the analysis is actually running in between those questions. So if you look at the questions I gave you, I just gave you question and answer, but in the, in the actual narration in Arabic, His question, answer, analysis. So let's give his analysis, going back to those questions. So family status, noble family. What's his analysis? He says, all of the prophets and messengers come from noble and respected families, right? Has anyone claimed to be a prophet from amongst the people before him? Abusufyan says no. What's his analysis? He says, if the answer was yes, I would have thought this man is following the previous man's statement. He's just, you know, he's following a trend. He's trying to, you know, follow the coattails of someone else, pursuing power and authority. Was anybody from his ancestors a king? Abu Sufyan says no. The analysis of Heraclius, he says if he said yes, I would would have thought that he's trying to get back his kingdom. He's trying to get it back. Who follows him? Is it the rich and noble, those of privilege, or is it the poor? Abu Sufyan says it's mostly the poor. And the analysis is all true prophets have their following among the fuqara, among the poor. Are the followers increasing or decreasing? They're increasing. His analysis, this is the sign of a true religion. Cults die out. They do. Cults die out. He says, are any of his followers becoming uh, Muslims, embracing the faith and then leaving it? Abu Sufyan says, no. He says, this too is a sign of a true religion. Have you ever accused him of lying before the the message? They said, no. Abu Sufyan says, no. And Heraclius' analysis, I know that whoever doesn't lie to the people, he will not lie regarding God. He doesn't lie about lie to the people. doesn't re- lie regarding God and receiving revelation. Has he broken promises? Abu Sufyan said, no. But we have this treaty and we don't know what the future holds. Uh, Heraclius says, prophets never lie or cheat. So, Abu Sufyan is an honest man despite the enmity. So there's a nobility of character still. And after hearing the answers to these questions, Heraclius realized that this is indeed a true messenger of God Almighty. However, he's a Christian and he's a ruler and he has these external pressures on him. So it's narrated that after this discussion took place with Abu Sufyan, he spoke to Dihya Al-Kalbi. He pulled him to the side and spoke privately with him. And the Heraclitus said, I know Muhammad is a genuine prophet of God. All of his characteristics are mentioned in our scriptures. But I am afraid that if I proclaim my faith, my people will not spare my life. They will kill me. And then it's mentioned that later, after that private conversation, he wanted to test the waters, uh, as it were, among his people. And he got some of the elders and you know his mala, his council in a private gathering, and he said to them, If you desire success and you seek right guidance and you want the empire to remain, then you have to give allegiance to this prophet who sent this letter. And when he said that, all of the people in the council, his advisors and the elders. They had, we, we say they, have a melt, they had a meltdown. They totally freaked out. And they ran to the door in fright and despair, worried that he's left Christianity, he's left our religion and embraced the religion of this person. And he was worried about this. And as they were running to the door, he called them back and said, no, 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 I was only testing you to see how faithful you are to me. And that was the last of him. So you know, a person can believe that something is true, but if they don't have the actual ithan, as we say in Arabic, the assent and the submission to that truth and the acknowledgement of that truth, it's not Islam, right? And so we don't say that he became a Muslim, unlike the Najashi who believed and proclaimed it. He didn't face any consequences for that. Heraclius was afraid of consequences, and so this became a barrier to his Islam. And he did not die as a Muslim. So these are two letters out of the four main letters. So the four main letters were sent to Najashi, followed by the letter to Heraclius of Byzantium, followed by the letter to Mukaukis of the Coptic Christians in Egypt, and then the fourth one was to Kisra or the Emperor of the Persians. So next week, inshallah, we'll talk about Muqawqis and the Kisra letters. And then we'll do an analysis. You know, we'll look at the lessons from all of the letters because when you put them all together and look at how each of them are different from the other, you can actually get a lot of lessons about how you communicate Islam to people. And we'll look at that next week, inshallah. Ta'ala, اللَّهُ wa wa